0: Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders, a podcast where people connected to autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, I'm your host, Rachel Harmon, a professional with over a decade of experience in the field of autism services, outreach, and advocacy. Have you ever looked for a service provider in a rural area and had a hard time finding just one professional near you with a certification established by a board? How would you know if those other, non-credentialed service providers have completed proper, systematic training? In today's episode, we address these topics and much, much more. This episode with Mari Carmen Hazuri was originally released in July 2020. We're re-releasing it today to emphasize the need for a set of professional standards in order to protect families and individuals receiving autism services. When this conversation was recorded, the Behavior Analyst Certification Board had just announced that they would discontinue international certification for behavior analysts. Although the decision initially caused some upset, confusion, and disappointment, other organizations like the International Behavior Analyst Organization, or IBAO, and the Qualified Applied Behavior Analysis Credentialing Board, or QABA, have since stepped up to fill the space. Marie Carmen Hazuri, or Kaki for short, is a board-certified behavior analyst and the co-founder of Centro ACAP, an autism center in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. The Global Autism Project partnered with Centro ACAP in 2018, and we have since sent three SkillCore volunteer teams to provide sustainable, hands-on training. In this conversation, among other things, we discuss... Autism Awareness in the Dominican Republic and the Types of Autism Services Currently Available, how Kaki became involved in the field and why she's passionate about using Applied Behavior Analysis to help families, the need for a Spanish-speaking certification board, why the current Code of Ethics for Behavior Analysts is not completely relevant to Dominican culture, what Kaki has learned from partnering with the Global Autism Project, and which aspects of Dominican culture she's most excited to share with our SkillCore volunteer teams when they visit. In this episode, discover what's possible when quality care is cultivated from within. And now, I present you, Mari Carmen Hazuri. Hi, Kaki. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Hi, how are you? Great. I'm so excited to have you here. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I've never done this before. <laughs> so, you're joining us from Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Could you start first by painting us a picture of the landscape of autism in the DR? What is the understanding of and the attitudes towards autism there?
1: So, here in DR, obviously, autism isn't as understood as it is in the States right now. But in the past, like, 10 or 15 years, there have been big leaps in the understanding and treatment of autism. It used to be more of like a taboo topic. And obviously, there's still a lot of fear around the diagnosis and a lot of fear with the families as to what's going to happen when you get a diagnosis. But there is more awareness and people are a lot more open to students or adults with autism.
0: Hmm. So what was the change 10 or 15 years ago? What happened?
1: From what I understand, the first lady started a center called Guide, and she started bringing professionals from the United States and from Mexico and Spain to train students, well, undergrads, to implement ABA and other methods in order to treat autism, I guess. And she started promoting the appropriate use of therapy for autism. And she started, her department was funding a lot of, like most of this movement. With that, there was a lot of awareness. A lot of people started understanding what autism was. They were serving a population that wasn't just the population that used to get services before, which was higher socioeconomic status but they were serving the entire population. And through that process, a lot of people have gotten trained. A lot of people have received services. A lot of students have gotten diagnosed on time. And really the lives of a lot of kids have changed. And pretty much like the whole view on autism and how often you hear about it, how often you see it in public, how many people you know that have autism has. Increased in the past couple of years just because there is more acceptance and there's more awareness.
0: Mm -hmm. You said the first lady, like the president's wife? Yeah. Oh, wow. What was her connection? I have no idea. That was her project. She got together with,
1: I think, the Taiwanese government and they funded this amazing center and they have five of them now all around the country.
0: That's really cool. So when you were growing up, Did you hear about autism? Was it a word that people knew about? I didn't hear about autism
1: until I was in high school, I think. I knew some kids on the spectrum, but they were just like we were told that they were a little bit different or that they learned in a different way or that they had a hard time learning, but it was never called autism. And then in high school, we did like this senior extended essay where you had to do it was kind of like a project where you had to do research and write a paper and i ended up doing it on autism and those like private institutions that work with people that are like on the really more severe end of the spectrum and who need a lot of support and a lot of help and That's around the time I started hearing the word autism and what autism was. It wasn't something that was around when I was growing up, even though I was in contact with some people on the spectrum.
0: Mm -hmm. And what kind of services are available for families once their children are diagnosed? So here in DR, there's a lot of different therapies that have
1: arisen from, like, honestly, from the need, because there are so many people that need services and their professionals are trying to get trained in order to provide the correct service and to provide adequate services. And there are a lot of different versions of things that people have come up with. Through this process, there has been kind of this movement toward what they call like behavioral therapies. So a lot of psychologists have taken courses or done some trainings in order to implement what they call behavior therapy. And that's one of the services that is mostly available for kids on the spectrum. There's a lot of professionals also providing services just from what they learn in their psych courses that might be helpful. So just like a psychologist providing some services to the students or just psych students providing one-on-one therapy or one-on-one support in schools, kind of like a para would do without the training or supervision, which is one of the things that we're trying to improve here. We're trying to increase the amount of training and supervision these professionals are receiving before they're implementing these therapies or giving services to the students.
0: Mm -hmm. So schools are welcoming to having one-on-one aides in the classroom? Some schools are. Okay.
1: Technically, schools aren't allowed to tell the kid that they're not accepted into the school because of their diagnosis, but a lot of schools aren't friendly to the amount of supports the kids might need or the type of support the kids might need. And some schools are really trying to improve the support that they're providing to their students on the spectrum. And some schools will straight up say, we just can't because we don't know how, which in my opinion is a good step just because it's really not fair to tell a parent. Yeah, we're Inclusive when you don't know how to build an inclusive classroom and you don't have those supports built into your school.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned that with more awareness, more families are able to receive services. Are they paying out of pocket or is there some specific government funding? So
1: for CAID services, the government is funding most of it and the families receive services through the government when they go to guide, but the amount of hours that they receive is minuscule compared to what is recommended for a kid on the spectrum to receive ABA services for. And what we've seen a lot is that some insurance companies will cover services from a private provider or from another provider, but they won't cover more than a couple of hours a week or maybe a couple of hours a month. There isn't a lot of understanding about of what ABA is, how much therapy is needed, what it means to have intensive ABA. And that has been one of the bigger issues that we're facing here, just because there's also, there isn't a culture of that intensive therapy here. When people think of therapy in DR, people think an hour a week, maybe two hours a week if you really need intensive therapy, but nobody thinks 20, 30 or 40 hours a week, which is what most of our kiddos, when they're diagnosed, really, really need.
0: Yeah, especially at that young age, that early intervention is so important. Yeah. What types of services are available for adults?
1: Very, very little. Here, most services are geared towards the younger students and early intervention. If a family can pay for services for a child that is older, They might be able to find someone who can provide those services. There is a center called Aprendo Como En Casa, and they're doing a great job of kind of teaching daily living skills and those independent skills that uh, an older student needs. So their students are usually older than eight or nine, I think, and they go all the way to like 22. But there are very little services for adults here. A lot of times parents are also... Like, if you have a twenty twenty-five year old, twenty-five years ago in DR, there was oh, it was really hard to get diagnosed. It was very hard to receive early intervention. So a lot of parents haven't had a very good experiences with services. So at that point, they're not looking for any support because their experience with services hasn't been positive. So they've learned how to kind of manage and. A lot of those students need a lot lot more support than they would if they maybe had access to better services. Even guide only goes to 12 years old.
0: Mm -hmm. So Kaki, how did you get started working with the autistic population? You wrote that essay when you were in high school, but how do you really get into the field?
1: I went to undergrad in Boston. And I graduated and I didn't want to come back home and my parents said I needed to either keep studying or get a job and I was gonna go to med school, but chemistry was not my friend. (laughs) So I started figuring out what I would be willing to work in and I ended up applying to it's a a school called the May Institute in Randolph, Massachusetts. And I was asked into to co- go for an interview, I d- had no idea what autism was, like what it really was, that really had never had any experiences with kids on the spectrum. And I got hired for the Intensive Behavior Corps like that day. And then I stayed there for like three years and I loved it. It was super intense. Those first six months were the hardest six months of my entire life. <laughs> but It was so much fun. I loved it. And then I just, I decided to do my master's in ABA and now I'm a BCBA working with kids on the spectrum still.
0: Cool. So when did you go back to DR? Three years ago.
1: Yeah. After I worked there for a while, I moved to New York and worked in New York for a while and then decided to come back home.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Why are you passionate about helping people with autism?
1: I think I've seen a lot of families and a lot of kids go through really, really hard moments. And I have seen them go through therapies or interventions that haven't been effective. And after seeing the interventions work so well and so consistently with ABA, I think that there is... A way to make the diagnosis not be so heavy sometimes on these families and on these kids, and to make sure that these kids are part of our community and have independent lives and can enjoy relationships and families can learn how to accept them and understand them. And I don't know, I think I really like the change ABA can do within a family that has a diagnosis.
0: Yeah, I totally can echo those sentiments. You know, sometimes when you see even those small changes in kids, and sometimes also parents being surprised with what their kids are capable of, it can be so rewarding, those little moments. Yeah, definitely. Like the moment a kid can pull up his pants
1: on his own and you're like, you can go to the bathroom now. Like, yeah, that's a huge, huge win that sometimes, like, you don't really think about it. And some parents go through years and years of therapy with other interventions and other techniques that simply don't work for their kid. And I feel like ABA has always consistently made a difference.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. So you moved back to the DR three years ago. How did you start? So let me say this correctly. Centro ACAP.
1: Yeah. I actually started with my co-founder, who was my roommate in New York. and. She was a business major, she was a business person, but her mom had a preschool in New York and she'd had some experience running a school. And we started talking about services here in DR and what I would do when I moved back. And I was very aware that there wasn't anywhere that I wanted to work at. So there wasn't a place that I felt that was implementing ABA the way I wanted Or I knew it should be implemented. So we started talking about building a center. And then when I got back, that's what we did. It just
0: kind of slowly started happening. Yeah. And how many students do you have now and how many staff? Right now,
1: well, post-COVID, we're not even post-COVID, but after everything, we have eight, nine students and four staff. Or, well, they would be like RBTs.
0: Just to clarify for our listeners who aren't familiar, RBT stands for Registered Behavior Technician. And this is typically the one-on-one direct staff that works with the kids. So what was it before the pandemic started? We
1: had seven staff and 18 students.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We still have a lot of parents who haven't left home that are still trying to stay safe for different reasons. And we also switched the way we were providing services and moved to a more intensive format so that our kids are receiving more hours now that they're not in school. And yeah, things changed during COVID, but we've been able so far to keep going, to stay alive.
0: Yeah. Did you have to shut down at any point? Yeah. So we closed the
1: center in March, March 18th, and we weren't providing services until, I think, June 1st. Okay. We slowly started services, like, very, very slowly Mm -hmm. and tentatively.
0: Did you try the telehealth model during those months?
1: Yeah, we did some telehealth. None of my students had the readiness skills to receive therapy through telehealth, but some of my parents were willing to kind of become the therapist and implement therapy with us supervising. So I would call them, they would put like ear pods in their ears and they would film this, they would like set up the the iPad so that they could film the session and I would tell them what to do and then kind of give them tips as they went along. And then we would have meetings where we would go over programs, like just how we do with therapists, just so that they could implement sessions at home and the kids could still receive some some help.
0: Mm-hmm. How did that go for the parents? I know it was really hard for them
1: a lot to like find the time. And at first, it's always so difficult to understand like what we're telling them and like, the format of session, but they did awesome. I was so impressed how quickly they learned. I was so impressed how like determined they were to get it right, to implement the therapy right and how easily they generalized those skills. They were learning through the session as therapists to like other aspects of their lives or other moments in their day. It was amazing. I was so, so impressed with my parents. They did really, really well.
0: Cool. Were you doing parent training before? We were doing parent training, but it was always
1: with someone else there. So it was never just them and their kid. There was always someone who could intervene if something went wrong or kind of guide them a little bit closer. They would come into session where like towards the end of every session, we would ask them to come in and practice a program that was maybe almost mastered or a program that they, we needed them to practice at home or practice some communication skills. But it's different when you're working alone and you have to go through a correction procedure and you have to take data and you have to make sure that you give them a break when they need a break and all of that.
0: Yeah, there's a lot that goes into running a session.
1: Yeah, I feel like you don't notice until you're telling a parent to go through all of it. Because most RVTs come with like some experience of having to run a session. And it's a lot of things that they have to keep track of.
0: What is the situation like right now in DR? So we
1: were opening in like phases. Mm -hmm. So phase one, phase two. And we had elections this year and it was supposed to be in May, but they got moved to July. And because of the elections, the government decided to open, like, fully open a little bit earlier than was planned. And things, like, things got really bad really fast. So after the elections, they closed up again. So right now we're just working on, with a curfew. So people aren't allowed out from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m., I think it is. And you're supposed to wear your mask and try to be clean and wash your hands. But so far, we haven't seen the effects of further precautions. So the curve keeps getting steeper, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or like things keep getting a little bit, keep getting worse. There's a lot of new cases every day. And we're like our country isn't prepared for like most countries aren't prepared for this amount of Sick people at the same time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's kind of a hard spot.
0: Yeah, are you running sessions just with safety precautions, wearing masks in the classroom, or trying to?
1: Yeah, what we're doing is we took a couple steps in order to like decrease the possibility of contamination. So each therapist can only work with two students. So they work separately with the students, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. With some students, we're doing home visits because usually it's the whole family leaving the house in order to come to session, especially if their brothers and sisters don't have school anymore. So we're doing home visits in order to reduce that kind of potential contamination. And our therapists are doing the entire session with masks on. We were able to get like masks with like this. They're like cloth masks, but there's plastic in the front, so the kids can see their mouths. For like those imitation programs and those vocal programs that you kind of need to see what the therapist is doing, they look really funny because sometimes you look at them and it seems like they're not wearing a mask, but it's just because there's a like a clear shield in the front.
0: I've heard about those. I've heard that it's good for deaf people who read lips.
1: Yeah, and I think the person who made them was thinking about that population more than us, but it, they really worked for us because we still have a lot of kiddos with like emerging language skills so they kind of need to see your your lips move in order for that imitation to happen.
0: Right. I was wondering about that.
1: Yeah, and a lot of sandy wipes, a lot of alcohol, a lot of hand sanitizer and washing hands. we make sure that therapists are always six feet apart from each other and wearing masks. It's been a big switch for them to have to, when they come to the center, they can't have lunch together. So (laughs) that's been kind of a hard move for everyone. But yeah, we're moving forward. Our parents have been really, really good with keeping everything clean and being really open with us when something isn't working well for them.
0: That's good. All right, Kaki. So what challenges have you faced since starting the center?
1: Um, there's a lot.
0: Here in
1: DR, it hasn't been difficult finding professionals who are willing to learn, but it's been difficult kind of guiding them through a different way of therapy because a lot of the staff that have come through a cap have had experiences before, but not all of those experiences are similar to what we're doing. And a lot of the times we're Doing something that is completely inconsistent with what they've done before. And sometimes it goes against what they've been taught before. So that process has been pretty hard when it comes to training. I think it's something that happens a lot anywhere where you're training new staff. But I feel like here sometimes it, it's a little bit it's a little bit more difficult because it is so new for the country, ABA. And that way of providing support and providing therapy, that has been a big challenge. The administrative part of the whole project is a huge challenge. I had to learn a little bit of accounting, a little bit of finance, a little bit of business, and a lot of marketing. That has been a whole new world that I've come in contact with, for sure. But otherwise, people are so willing to learn and so willing to better themselves and to access new ways of helping their kids. It's, it's been pretty great.
0: How would you describe your leadership style? I, we did that test with Gap when they came.
1: <laughs> and I don't even remember what it was.
0: Was it the leadership compass? Yeah, yeah, we did that. And it was like Southwest
1: or something like that. But I don't remember what it stood for.
0: Southwest, yeah, that's the empathy and analytic. You know, a lot of BCBAs are Southwest. So just to explain a little bit for people, you're referring to this leadership compass, which is kind of like a leadership test that you take based on how you would respond in different situations. And the results of the test put you somewhere on a compass. So each coordinate represents something. And so in your case, Southwest is empathic and analytical.
1: Yeah, that was that was it. And we I remember there was like action and I was like so far away from action. Like not even (laughs) (laughs) and I think that I've I've had to like find the action in me in the past couple of years just because it's the only way to get things moving and get things done. But yeah. I think that just because ABA is analytic, you end up falling within that scope too.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can relate to the action part. It's something I've had to learn also. I think maybe in the past, I've just hesitated on taking action because I'm second-guessing myself, second-guessing my decision. I don't want to have any regrets, but I found that that was actually hindering me in moving forward sometimes. Yeah, you get stuck
1: in analyzing every aspect of what like could or should be. Yep. That you forget to like actually do something.
0: Mhm. So how has this played a part in your role at the center?
1: I think things through a lot before I take action. For sure. It takes me a while to like come to a decision or sometimes I'll make a decision and, and until I don't think of every possibility, I don't start taking action. (laughs) But I I think it's also been, I've surrounded myself with people that are very determined and take a lot of action. So it kind of helps me to like push me forward. And then with the empathy part, it's sometimes like people hear like, oh, that's great, an empathic leader. But sometimes you kind of need to be able to take a step back and make hard decisions. And I feel like during the pandemic it was it was one of those moments like just having to make those tough decisions and making sure that it doesn't like break you down because if you're not functioning properly then the whole center falls apart so that's something that is like it's a good thing but it has like everything it has its downside and i don't know i think that you start doing things and you start learning how to do them better right. as you Kind of misstep, and other people have definitely guided me in all of these processes. And my staff is amazing. So that really helps because they're really good at communicating and give me feedback.
0: Also, cool. Could you share a success story related to one of your students?
1: Yeah, we have those little success stories where you have a student who maybe it doesn't have a lot of vocal skills. And then a year later, you look at the data and you're like, oh my God, he went from zero words to 50 words in a year. And it's impressive. And then I had a student who was nine when he started with us. And he wasn't independent in the bathroom. He was still in a diaper. And we're at the point where he's not in a diaper anymore. And he he still needs some prompting to get there. But he's going on his own most of the time, which is great. That's a big, big win. I also have this student who is a little, he's hilarious and he loves attention and he loves giving his mom a hard time. And he used to get sick a lot, just like kids get sick, a lot of like colds and stuff like that. But every time he'd get sick, he would not take his meds. Like, there was no way mom could give him, like, not even that, like, fruity medicine that you give kids that they usually end up loving. There was no way. They ended up in the hospital having to, like, give him a shot because he'd get, like, a throat infection and there was no way he would take the antibiotics. And it got to a point where it was a real problem. And we decided to do this, like, it was kind of almost like a feeding routine, but for his meds. And we bought this like vitamins for kids, but it was a horrible tasting one. Mm. And he would earn a tiny piece of pizza every time he did a step in the program. And towards the end, he was asking for the medicine. He's like, I want medicine, first medicine, then pizza. (laughs) And we had this whole program for generalization where mom was going to come in and she was going to do it. And then one day he got sick and mom wrote me and she's like, So he got sick. I told him first meds, then pizza, and he took his meds. And they haven't had a problem since.
0: Oh, wow. Nice. It's like those weird things that you're like,
1: like people don't really think about. But it became a medical issue just because he didn't want to take his meds. And he had all the skills. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was just like, I like giving my mom a hard time sometimes. Mm. And that was one of his things. And it didn't make a big difference with them. So yeah. I think that's one of my favorite success stories because it's hilarious just remembering him.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What if you don't have pizza?
1: (laughs) Yeah. You have to have pizza
0: stocked up in the fridge.
1: Yeah. She told me that. She's like, I'm just going to keep pizza in the fridge in case he gets sick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Let's switch gears and talk about the BACB announcement from last December. They announced that they will no longer accept certification applications from individuals who reside outside of the U.S. and Canada. How has this change affected the field in DR? Yeah, that was a
1: big <laughs> surprise for us because we were finally moving towards getting out more certified people in in DR. But at the same time, I think it's been a good change. It's really affected us in different ways, but it's Been a good change. So, last, not last year, a year and a half ago, with GAP, we started a program at UNIBE, which is a university here in Santo Domingo, to provide the verified course sequence so that we could get a bunch of students certified as BCBAs. And they're still coursing their last couple of semesters and will be taking the exam next year. But after the BACB, Change the uh, kind of the requirements for certification, and they're requiring you to be a resident of the United States of Canada. It means that any future students that we have won't be able to get their BCBA's. So that they will become BCBA's. They will be receiving the same training, but won't be able to get that certificate. So at first, it was super disappointing. It was super disappointing. I mean, it was. Scary, But then it kind of made us realize like it is our opportunity to create our own version of a certification. It is our opportunity to make sure that our government and our legislation reflects that kind of certification here and that it's something that we can definitely do here in DR and use the BACB's task list and the verified core sequence kind of as a guideline or kind of like as requirements to follow. So now we're kind of, everybody's working towards finding a way to create our own version of a certification. We're trying to come in contact with other countries that are also doing this and trying to see if we can find a way to kind of merge the projects and find a way to certify students so that they still acquire the skills that they have to acquire and aren't providing services without any support or aren't providing services without the skills that they need in order to provide them adequately and are sticking to an ethics code and are well trained <laughs> so yeah i think it's been it's been hard but i think it was a good move in the end
0: yeah hey rachel here I'd like to thank Jennifer Damashek for leaving a review and share it with you all. It reads, quote, I'm inspired by listening to this podcast. Rachel interviews pioneers in the field of autism support, people who created a community where there was nothing. This is relevant and educational for anyone who has a dream, specifically in terms of supporting people and families affected by autism. There is a wealth of knowledge here. End quote. Thank you for the kind words, Jennifer. We welcome all types of feedback and especially appreciate reading the five-star reviews. If you're finding value in this episode, please let us know what you think at the end on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, back to the conversation. So you say you're looking to collaborate with other countries to come up with something together. What other countries, like some in your region?
1: One of the things that we're thinking about is Mostly, other countries that are providing the verified course sequence or providing certification in Spanish, because there is a big language barrier between the BACV and what we're providing. It's been difficult getting the same information, just because things set like when things are translated, sometimes the meaning is lost, and it's hard to like keep it true to what it was meant to be. And we're trying to just connect with other institutions that have been doing this in Spanish, mostly to learn from them and figure out how they've done it, if they've developed their own regulations. And it would be pretty cool to eventually have kind of your Spanish version of the BACB, where we're putting out our own literature and we are maybe working to translate some of those things that are really important and have already been done and need to be translated. Because right now there is no one really doing that. And there is a lot of literature in English that is super important and is really helpful and has already been done. And it would be easier to just translate it than to do it all over again. And it would be great if we could work together in order to figure that out.
0: Mm -hmm. What are some of the other countries that are pioneering this?
1: I know that Aba España. So in Spain, there is uh, they, they are providing the VCS, and I can't remember, but there were two other countries in South and Central America who were providing the VCS or a version
0: of it. Cool. Because actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but the University in DR was the first in that area to start providing the VCS, right?
1: Yeah. So in Central America and the Caribbean, we were the first. And it was the first master's program that you could be certified as a BCBA after you took the exam and everything. Because a lot of universities just provide the BCS. And if you have a master's program, you can take the BCS and then apply for the exam. But we were the first complete master's program. So for students who had just had their undergrads and didn't have a master's degree, we were the only program that was doing it in Spanish at that time.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about your role as the coordinator?
1: My role is mostly kind of coordinating classes, making sure students are signed up for the classes, kind of giving support to the professors, and making sure that supervision is being completed appropriately. So they're all doing their hours through the university. So we're providing the supervisors, and a lot of what I do is just Matching them up and making sure the schedules are correct and making sure that they're keeping up with their hours. And yeah, talking to the professors. And I get to talk to them a lot. We have meetings every once in a while just so that I can give them some help if I can with whatever they're dealing with in class because they don't have access to that many BCBAs as you would if you were doing your coursework in the States. So I learned something in class when I was at the May, I would go to work the next day and there were at least six different BCBAs that I would talk to every single day that could answer any questions that I had or model anything I needed to see. And they just have contact with their supervisors once a week and their group supervisors every two weeks and then their teacher once a week. So it's, their experience is a little bit different and it's a little bit harder to learn some of the, more specific tasks, it's a little bit harder for them to get answers to just questions that pop up every day when they're practicing. So I think that's one of my favorite parts is just talking to them and having them ask me things and telling them like my experience. I mean, like, I really don't know. We need to ask someone else because obviously I don't have all the answers, but it's that's a really fun part. But mostly I just coordinate schedules and
0: classes. Cool. But you're mentoring also?
1: Kind of. More like supporting.
0: hmm How many BCBAs are there in the country?
1: Right now, there are four, I want to say. Wow. No, there's five. There's five. Someone just moved back. Okay. Yeah.
0: Five women. <laughs> are they all spread out? Are services more available to everyone?
1: Here in Santo Domingo, this is the capital, and it's me and two other girls. And then, towards the east in Valle Ibe, there is another PCBA. And then in the north, there is another PCBA. So, kind of more spread out than I would have predicted, but not totally.
0: Mm. Well, hopefully with the university program, there can be more professionals that graduate and who can then provide more services to families that need it.
1: Yeah. Hopefully by the end of next year, we'll have 16 more BCBAs in the country.
0: Cool. So I want to circle back to something you said earlier. You mentioned that it's important to make sure that behavior analysts or therapists are adhering to some kind of ethical code. And- I know that the code that is practiced here in the US is very specific to American culture, you would say? Yeah. What are some different ethical considerations that someone might have in DR?
1: There are two big aspects of the code that kind of conflict with Dominican culture. One of them is receiving gifts and that whole process, and the other one is with dual relationships. And for some reason, for me, they're kind of tied together because kind of like if you're receiving gifts from the family, then it might develop into a dual relationship. And like, I get that. But it is a big part of our culture for families to give their teachers and to give the lady that does your nails and to give the person you work with and just like everyone you have constant contact with to give them a gift for their birthday or to give them a gift for Christmas or for teachers, Valentine's Day is a big gift-receiving moment of the year. So it's a huge part of the culture and it's kind of jarring when you have to tell a parent like, oh no, we can't receive a gift or "Oh, like, oh, I know you did this mug with my name on it, but you need to take it back. So it kind of, I'm not saying it ruins your relationship, But it's kind of hard for parents to get, and it is kind of a barrier that you put into that rapport that you've been building with them. And it just doesn't apply to our culture as it does to an American culture, because they're just different, and people are so used to doing it that it's more shocking when you say, like, no, you can't give me a gift than when you just accept it. So that's a big one here. That's one that I feel like every person has a hard time with when they hear about it. And then for dual relationships, that's another big difference that we have because there aren't as many BCBAs here. There aren't as many people here, and Dominicans are all very closely knit. So. When I meet someone new and they hear my name, they're, oh, are you so-and-so's daughter? Or are you so-and-so's granddaughter? Mm-hmm. Or, or they hear my boyfriend's name. Oh, is he related to so-and-so? <laughs> and it's very common for people to kind of like try to build your family tree when they meet you. <laughs> yeah. And most of the time, there's some sort of connection because it's a small community and people are very close. And people have very, very, very extensive memories of family histories. So that's a hard one to kind of deal with because sometimes you get yourself into situations where you are not aware that there is a dual relationship. And then it kind of pops up and you're like, oh man, what do I do now? Who do I refer to? Because there are two other people in the city who are working with kids. And in my case, I'm the only one who's working with teenagers. So where do I refer the student to because there is this dual relationship? Mm -hmm. And those are like two ethical, I guess, considerations that are really hard to deal with here that keep popping off for us, for for me, for my staff, for the students. It's just, it keeps coming back up because those are two parts of the ethics code that kind of clash with our culture. And it makes sense. The ethics code was built for Americans and we're all in a whole different culture. So maybe we need to develop our own version of it or maybe define some things a little bit further in order for us to be able to practice safely within the ethical
0: boundaries. Exactly. So you said that you work with teenagers. Do you offer some kind of vocational training or life skills training to prepare them for adulthood? We do a lot of
1: daily living skills. We are looking into vocational skills for one of our students who is getting there because a lot of my teenagers are just teens. They just became teens. And yeah, we are looking into vocational skills for one of our students now. But what we'll work on a lot is just daily living skills, a lot of social skills, because that's a, a big one that I feel. You really notice once the kid becomes a teenager. I mean, all teenagers are awkward in general. So like having a diagnosis and not being in contact maybe with peers on a regular basis leads to a higher need for social skills. And we work on that a lot.
0: Cool. Changing topic. Kaki, tell us about your partnership with the Global Autism Project.
1: I'll tell you how I heard about the Global Autism Project first because it's really weird. My supervisor for in Simmons, when I was doing my master's for my my supervision hours, one day she came in and she's like, "Oh, we need to do more supervision this month, or like at the beginning of this month because I'm leaving for two weeks. I'm traveling with Global Autism Project," and I'm like, "What?" And she explained to me what Gap was, and she explained to me what they did and. She was going to Czech Republic, I think, then. I don't remember if she was going somewhere else and then went there. But she told me about Global Autism Project, and I looked them up, and I saw what they did. And I actually was starting an application to become part of skillcore because I was still in grad school. I was living in the States, and I like, I'm like, this is so cool. I get to see what ABA is like in other countries. And then obviously grad school and traveling and work don't really mix together. (laughs) So I wasn't able to travel. But a couple of years later, when my co-founder, she, her cousin actually had a center in Nicaragua that was a partner with Gap. And when she told me about it, I'm like, oh my God, I know about them because my supervisor travels with them. So I went and I got to know the center and in Nicaragua and through Bea in Nicaragua. And I don't even know exactly how it happened. We ended up meeting with Molly and we told her that we were thinking about opening up a center in DR. And we started a relationship mostly. It was mostly to like guide us through the admin portion of opening up a center. At that time, it was a little bit different because I was already a BCBA, but I had no, like I had no administrative skills <laughs> and I had no idea how a center would work. And they helped us out through that. And I was also I'd always been working under two or three different BCBAs, so I'd never been in a place where I had no one to talk to or ask questions or get guidance from. So they were providing also clinical support and I'd have meetings every week. First, I had three different clinical supervisors. The three of them were amazing. And yeah, we started working together before our CAP existed. I actually chose the name with Cassie. She chose our colors <laughs> we made a logo that we ended up changing because it was just her and I in the like Brooklyn office making stuff up that <laughs> wasn't really um, meant to be forever. And yeah, that's how it started.
0: How many Skillcore trips have gone to a cup?
1: Three Skillcore trips. Okay, because we didn't start with Skillcore since when we started there, we didn't have a center. I had no kids. I had kind of unpacked my bags here. Like I legit came here and then went to New York for a meeting with Molly and came back. And they worked with us through the process of like getting clients and doing our trainings and all of that and training our staff. And then we had our first SkillCore trip in February and we were homeless back then. We didn't have a physical space. We were working out of Univict. They lent me a classroom and we were working out of a classroom in an Wow. And we had to leave every day at five because the students would come in and they needed the classroom. So yeah, that was our first trip. And then we had a couple more during that year.
0: Do you have any special memories with SkillCore?
1: I think like you have like a ton of special memories, but I got pretty cool SkillCore members. like. I got pretty cool leaders for the team to come and visit. I don't know if you know Mandy. Yep. One of the groups was with Mandy, and it was awesome because she brings a whole different perspective. Because I feel like if you're a BCBA, you only think in ABA world, and everything is ABA. And she does bring that kind of teacher side of it. And it it was awesome for our center.
0: Shout out to Mandy Childs. She's going to be so excited to hear from you. She became the Skill Corps coordinator. Last year, well, things have kind of shifted now that we're reinventing ourselves as an organization since we can't travel internationally, but yeah, Mandy's awesome.
1: She was great. And I feel like that skill core trip was really, really good because we just moved into the center and we were organizing everything and it kind of helped us build. It was a great team building experience. When Brittany came, she was our first skill core trip. And it was amazing because she helped me set up everything that had to do with supervision and everything that had to do with like procedural integrity. And it was so good. It was like, she was a lifesaver. And then for my last school trip, my supervisor from grad school, Ksenia, actually came on the trip and it was like last minute, super unexpected. And I'm like... Because she's like, she's my supervisor. She she taught me everything I know. So she got to come and see the center and give me feedback. And it was, it was awesome.
0: Wow, that must have been so special for her to see how much you've grown over the years too. I hope so. <laughs> what part of Dominican culture do you like to share with teams when they visit?
1: DR is a tourist country. So everywhere you go, it's like tourist friendly. A lot of people speak English. A lot of people in the service industry speak speak English. So it's a country that it's really easy for you to come and just find your way around. We try to give them kind of ideas of things that they can do, places that they should visit. But we always do a... It's a little weird. And sometimes I tell my friends and they're like, why are you taking people there? And I'm like, because I love it. (laughs) We always do this like team lunch or dinner where we go to this place called Adrian Tropical and it's like it's our version of IHOP but better
0: okay because
1: it's like a late night eat place but it's also a great place to go to lunch and it's all Dominican foods and you can go there and everybody can try different Dominican foods and they always have a ton of seating it's very Dominican themed and I love the food there and People are like, there's so many better places. And I'm like, yeah, but there's no place like that place. (laughs) So we take them there always. I think that what we mostly share is the food. Mm -hmm. We're big eaters. And I feel like all the skill core teams have left with a couple more pounds than they came in a good way. Because, yeah, the food is so good that people are just like, they spend two weeks eating.
0: (laughs) What are some of your favorite Dominican dishes?
1: I'm obsessed with sancocho, which is like a stew that has 10 different kinds of meat and like all of the um, root vegetables that you can think of. I think they're root vegetables like plantains and yuca and stuff like that. And I love it. Like I'm obsessed with it. I will eat it anytime it's offered. It doesn't matter. I, I love it.
0: Mm, that sounds delicious. It
1: is. It sounds weird, but it's delicious. I promise. <laughs>
0: So Kaki, you attended Global Summit last August in Bali. That's where we met, actually. Yeah. What was it like for you to spend that week with all of the partners?
1: It was pretty cool. I feel like I went into a different dimension of life because like, with the jet lag and Bali, and you're meeting all these people that you've heard about for so long, and you're actually staying in the same house as them, and you're hearing about their stories that are so similar to yours. But, in a completely different language in a the other side of the world, and it was great. I loved it. All of the activities that we did and the talks were pretty cool and pretty eye opening, I got to learn about things that I didn't know I needed to learn about, since like a lot of what leadership is you don't really learn about in school and nobody like sits you down before you start a center. Like, Oh, these are the things that you need to do to be a good leader. It's like those things that people are kind of assume that you just know, or you either have it or you don't, but it was great. Like getting some guidance and seeing all the parts of it. It was really fun. And the food was amazing.
0: Oh yeah. That too. Well, Kaki, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I'd like to close with one last question. Seeing as how you're really involved with the university program there, do you have any advice for students who are trying to pursue their certification to become a behavior analyst?
1: Yes. I would say try to find people in the field. Try to always ask questions. I think that one of the best skills I learned when I was in grad school it was to ask questions when I wasn't sure, when I didn't understand. And in the end, like every question you have, somebody else has had it at some point and there is usually an answer to it. And when there isn't an answer to it, then there's something missing in either the program or the technique you're learning or the concept you're trying to understand. So my advice, I think, to everyone is just to try to ask as many questions as come up in your mind. So, like, always don't ignore a question. No question is too small or too stupid. Ask questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually kind of falls into our training model, too, the Socratic approach. Yeah. This is something we do a lot when we visit other countries and other cultures. Just ask questions. That's how you learn. That's how you come from a place of humility and just being open-minded.
1: And it's a big help with parents too. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing a program and you're not sure where to go, start asking questions and you'll find your way there.
0: Exactly. All right, Kaki. So if people want to learn more about you, if they want to learn more about ACAP, do you have like an Instagram? Do you have a website?
1: We have an Instagram account called Sintra which is essentially our full marketing platform. And we try to post a lot about ABA and helpful tips for parents and professionals.
0: Cool. Yeah, we'll post a link to that in our show notes. All right, Kaki, thank you again. Thanks for your time. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing a little bit about your culture with us.
1: Always. Thank you.
0: If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take a moment to rate the show and leave a review. You'll be helping us to continue spreading autism awareness and acceptance around the world. Thanks for listening to Autism Knows No Borders. Take care.